Hi, I'm Chris Edges. Welcome to Days of Revolt. Today, in a two-part series, we're going to be discussing the great Ponzi scheme that defines the not only U.S., but global economy, how we got there in the first segment, and secondly, where we're going. And with me to discuss this issue is the economist Michael Hudson, author of Killing the Host, How Financial Parasites and Debt Destroy the Global Economy, a professor of economics who worked for many years on Wall Street, where you don't succeed if you don't grasp Marx's dictum that capitalism is about exploitation. And he is also, I should mention, the godson of Leon Trotsky. Welcome, Michael. Thank you. It's good to be here. I want to open this discussion by reading a passage from your book, uh, which I admire very much, which I think gets to the core of what you discuss. You write, Adam Smith long ago remarked that profits often are highest in nations going fastest to ruin. There are many ways to create economic suicide on a national level. The major way throughout history has been by indebting the economy. Debt always expands to reach a point where it cannot be paid by large swaths of the economy. This is the point where austerity is imposed and ownership of wealth polarizes between the 1% and the 99%. Today is not the first time this has occurred in history, but it is the first time that running into debt has occurred deliberately, applauded, as if most debtors can get rich by borrowing, not reduced to a condition of debt peonage. So let's start with classical economics who certainly understood this. Um, they were reacting, of course, to feudalism. And, and what happened to the study of economics so that it became gamed by ideologues? Well, the essence of classical economics was to reform industrial capitalism, to streamline it, and to free the European economies from the legacy of feudalism. And the legacy of feudalism were landlords that were extracting land rent uh, and living as a uh, class that uh, took income without producing anything. And the banks, which uh, were not funding industry, the leading industrialists uh, from James Watt with the steam engine well, let me, to let the railroad, none of them there. could get money uh, from, from the your banks. From your book, you, you make the point that banks almost never funded industry. That's the point, uh, that they never had. And uh, by the time you got uh, to Marx later in the 19th century, uh, you had uh, a whole discussion, largely in Germany, uh, over how do we uh, make banks do something they didn't do under feudalism. Right now, we're having a uh, the economic surplus being drained by the landlords and by drained by the the bondholders. Uh, Adam Smith uh, was very much against colonialism, and because that led to wars, and he was against wars because that led to public debt. Uh, and he said the solution uh, to prevent uh, this uh, financial class of bondholders burdening down the economy by imposing more and more taxes on consumer goods every time they went to war was to finance wars on a pay-as-you-go basis. Instead of borrowing, you'd tax the people then. He thought that if everybody felt the burden of war, then uh, in the form of paying taxes, they'd be against it. Well, it took all of the 19th century to fight for democracy and to extend the vote so that instead of the landlords controlling the uh, parliament and the lawmaking and the tax system through the House of Lords, uh, you'd extend the vote uh, uh, to labor, to women, to everybody. So on the theory that uh, society as a whole would vote in its own self-interest and it would vote for the 99% not for the 1%. Uh, and so uh, when by the time Marx wrote in the 1870s, uh, he could al already see what was happening in Germany, that the German banks were indeed making, trying to make money in conjunction with the government by lending to heavy industry, largely to the military industrial This was Bismarck. Uh, Bismarck's that, kind of social, I don't know what we call it, it was a form of capitalist socialism well, They called it state capitalism. State capitalism. And there was a long discussion uh, by Engels uh, saying, wait a minute, state, capital state uh, socialism or state capitalism isn't what we mean by socialism. Uh, and there are two kinds of state-oriented. I, mean, I mean, I should just interject. I mean, there was a kind of brilliance behind Bismarck's policy because sure. he created uh, pension funds, he uh, provided health benefits, uh, and he directed banking towards industry, towards the industrialization of 
Germany, which, as you point out, was very different in Britain and the United States. Well, the German banking was so successful that by the time World War II, World War I broke out, there were discussions in uh, the English journals uh, saying, we're worried that uh, Germany and the Axis powers are going to win because their banks are more suited to fund industry, and uh, without industry you can't have uh, really a military, whereas the, the British banks uh, only lend for foreign trade, they lend for speculation, and the stock market is a hit-and-run operation. Uh, they want a quick in and out uh, to, uh, to make the profits, whereas the German banks uh, don't insist that uh, their clients pay as much dividends. Right. The German banks own stocks as well as bonds, and there's much more of a partnership. Uh, and that's what most of the 19th century imagined was going to happen, that the world was on the way towards socializing banking, towards moving capitalism beyond the feudal epoch and getting rid of the landlord class, getting rid of the rent, getting rid of interest, and uh, really it was going to be uh, labor and capital, profits and wages, uh, with the profits being reinvested in more capital, and you'd have an expansion of technology. And uh, around the early 20th century, most futurists uh, imagined that we'd be living in a, a leisure economy by now. Including uh, Karl Marx. Uh, that's right. Yeah, 10-hour work week. And right. to Marx, socialism was just uh, uh, the reformed state of uh, capitalism at the time. But that, that isn't what happened in large part because of the defeat of Germany in World War I. Uh, but also because we took the understanding of economists like Adam Smith and maybe Keynes, and uh, I, I don't know who you would blame for this, whether it's Ricardo or others, and we, we created a fictitious economic form or, or economic theory uh, that erased rentier or, or rent-derived, interest-derived capitalism and counted it as a productive force within the economy. Perhaps you can address that. Well, here's what happened. Marx sort of traumatized classical economics by taking the concepts of Adam Smith and John Stuart Mill and the others and pushing them to the logical conclusion. He said that the progressive capitalism, uh, people called Ricardian socialists like John Stuart Mill, said, okay, we want to tax away the land or nationalize it. Uh, we want to have uh, the government take over the heavy industry and build infrastructure to provide low-cost uh, basic services. This this was traumatizing uh, the landlord class and the uh, the one percent, and uh, they fought back. Now, none of the classical economists could even imagine how on earth can the feudal interests, these uh, great vested interests, and uh, that had all this money, actually fight back and succeed? They thought the future was going to belong to capital and labor. And around the late 19th century, certainly in America, you had people like uh, John Bates Clark. Uh, come out with a completely different theory. The, the whole classical economics, what made uh, Adam Smith and the physiocrats and John Stuart Mill... Physiocrats, are, you yeah. should explain, are the French, the, these enlightened French yeah. economists. Uh, yeah. well, the common denominator among all the classical economists was the distinction between earned income and unearned right. income. And uh, the unearned income was rent and interest. The earned income were uh, wages and, right. and, and profits. Well, uh, John Bates Clark came and said, there's no such thing as unearned income. The landlord actually earns uh, the money by uh, taking all this effort to provide a house and a land uh, to renters and the banks that provide uh, credit and uh, uh, they, their interest. Every kind of income is, uh, everybody earns their income. So anyone who accumulates wealth by definition according to his formulas, uh, get rich by adding to what is now called gross domestic product. And I think one of the points you make in your book, which I liked, was that in almost all cases, uh, those who had the capacity to make money parasitically off interest and rent uh, had either, if you go back to the origins, looted and seized the land by force or inherited it. That, that's correct. In other words, uh, the unearned income. Well, the result of this uh, sort of anti-classical revolution that you had just before World War I uh, was that today almost all of the economic growth in the last uh, decade has gone to the 1%. It's gone to Wall well, Street, but, real and, estate. And you, and you, but you blame this on what you call junk economics. Well, the junk economics was the anti-classical reaction. And, 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 and explain a little bit how, in essence, that's a fictitious form of measuring 
the economy? Well, uh, suppose uh, you have a crook and you're, taking, you're going to the bank. Uh, I went to a, uh, a block away. We had a Chase Manhattan Bank, and I used to bank there. I took out money from the bank, and uh, as I was going out, to, uh, to uh, pickpot one pushed me over, and the other grabbed the money and ran out. Just I was 10 feet from the teller. Uh, the guard stood there, and uh, so I naturally asked for the money back and said, look, I was robbed in your bank right in front. And uh, they said, well, you know, we, we don't arm our guards because if they shot one of the people, uh, he, the, the, uh, the thief could sue us, and we don't want to do that. We'll just uh, give you money back. Well, imagine if you count all of this crime, all the money that's taken, as an addition to GDP, because now uh, the crook uh, has provided the service of uh, not uh, pushing me down or not stabbing me, or suppose somebody's held up at an ATM machine, your money or your life. Okay, here's the money. The crook has given you uh, the, uh, the choice of your life. Well, in a way, that's how the gross national product accounts are put up. Uh, you have Wall Street extracting money from the economy. Uh, you have landlords and extracting... And let's go back. They're extracting money from the economy by by debt peonage, by raising... But by not playing a productive role, right. basically. So it's credit card interest, mortgage interest, car loans, student loans. That's how they make their funds. Uh, that, that's right. And so they don't... Uh, money is not a factor of production. Uh, but in order to uh, have access to credit, in order to get the money, in order to get an education, you have to pay the banks. Uh, right. Uh, and at uh, New York University here, for instance, they have Citibank. Uh, I think a Citibank people uh, were on the board of directors of NYU. Uh, you get the students uh, when they come here to uh, start at the local bank. And once you are in a bank and have monthly uh, funds taken out of your account for... Uh, electric utilities or whatever, it's very hard to change. Uh, so basically you have uh, what uh, the classical economists called the rentier class, the class that lives on economic rents. Landlords, monopolists are charging more, and uh, uh, the, the banks, so that if you have a uh, a pharmaceutical company uh, such that raises the rate of a drug from $12 uh, a shot to uh, 200 that's all of a sudden their profits go up. Uh, their increased price for the drug is created, uh, is counted in the national income accounts as if the economy is producing more. So all of this presumed economic growth that has all been taken by the 1% in the last 10 years. And uh, people say the economy is growing, but the economy isn't growing. Because it's not it's, reinvested. That's right. It, it, it's, not, uh, it, it's not production. It's not consumption. Right. Uh, the wealth of the 1% is obtained by essentially lending money to the 99% and then charging interest on it and re recycling this interest at an uh, uh, exponentially growing rate. And why is it important, as I think you point out in your book, that economic theory counts this rentier income as productive income. Explain why that's important. If you're a rentier, you want to say that, hey, I earned my income We're by... We're talking uh, about Goldman Sachs, yeah, by the way. Goldman Sachs. is perfect. If you, uh, well, yes, the head of Goldman Sachs came out and said, uh, Goldman Sachs workers are the most productive in the world. That's why they're paid what they are. And the concept of productivity uh, in America is the... In, uh, income divided by the labor. So if you're Goldman Sachs and you pay yourself uh, $20 million a year in salary and bonuses, you're considered to have added $20 million to GDP, and that's enormously productive. So we're talking with tautology. We're talking of circular reasoning here. So the issue is whether Goldman Sachs, Wall Street, uh, predatory pharmaceutical firms actually add to product or whether they're just exploiting uh, the people. And uh, that's why I called uh, uh, my book uh, Parasitism, uh, because the parasite, uh, people think of the parasite as simply uh, taking money out, taking blood out of the uh, uh, host or taking money out of the economy. But in nature, it's much more complicated. Uh, the parasite can't simply come in and take something. First of all, it needs to numb. Uh, it has an enzyme that numbs the host, so the host doesn't even realize the parasite's there. And then the parasites have another enzyme that makes the host, uh, it takes over the host's brain. And it makes the host imagine that the parasite is part of the body, that actually part of itself to be protected. Well, that's basically 
basically what Wall Street has done. It's made, it, it depicts itself as part of the economy, not as a wrapping around it, not as external to it, but actually is uh, the part is, that's helping the, uh, the body grow and that actually is responsible for most of the growth when in fact it's the parasite that's taking over the, uh, the growth. So the result is an inversion of classical economics. It turns Adam Smith upside down. It says that the, what the classical economists said was unproductive parasitism actually is the real economy and the parasites are labor uh, and industry right. uh, that, that get in the way of uh, the par what the parasite wants, which is to reproduce itself, not help the host uh, labor and capital. And the reproduce. classical economists like Adam Smith were quite clear that unless that rentier income, you know, the money made by things like hedge funds was heavily taxed and put back into the economy, the economy would ultimately go into a kind of tailspin. Uh, and, and I think the example of that, which you point out in your book, is what's happened in terms of large corporations with stock dividends and buybacks. And maybe you can explain that. Well, there's an idea uh, in uh, sort of superficial textbooks in the public media that if companies make a large profit, that somehow they make it by being productive. Uh, and Which if, is still in, in textbooks, isn't it? Yes. And also that if a stock price goes up, you're just capitalizing the profits and the stock price reflects the productive role of the company. But that's not what's been happening in the last 10 years. Uh, just in the last two years, 92% of corporate profits in America have been spent either on buying back their own stock or in uh, paying out as dividends to raise the price of and the stock. And explain why they do this. About uh, 15 years ago at Harvard, uh, a professor called Jensen said uh, the way to uh, uh, ensure that corporations are run uh, to make most efficiently is uh, to make uh, the managers uh, increase the price of the stock. So if you give the managers stock options and you pay them, not according to you know how much they're producing or making the company bigger or expanding production, but uh, the price of the stock, then you'll have the corporation run efficiently, financial uh, style. So the, uh, the corporate managers find there are two ways that they can uh, increase the price of the stock. Uh, the first thing is to cut back long-term investment and use the money instead to buy their uh, own stock. Just And when you buy your own stock, that means you're not putting the money into capital formation. You're not building new factories. You're not hiring more labor. You can actually increase the stock price by Tempor firing temporarily. labor. Temporarily. By using the income from the past just to buy the stock, fire the labor force if you can, not, uh, work it more intensively, uh, pay it out as dividends, and that basically is the uh, corporate raiders model. Uh, you use the money to pay off the, uh, the junk bond holders at high interest. Uh, and of course, this gets the company in such trouble after a while, because there's no new investment, markets shrink, that you then go to the labor unions and say, gee, uh, the, this company is really near bankruptcy, uh, and we don't really want to have to fire you. And the way that you can keep your job is if we just uh, uh, downgrade your pensions. And instead of giving you what we promised, uh, the defined benefit pensions, it's a defined contribution. Uh, you know what you pay every month, but you don't know what's going to come out at all. And so you wipe out the pension funds, push it on to uh, the government, the Pension Benefit Guarantee Corporation, and uh, all of a sudden you use the money you were going to pay for pensions to pay a stock dividends and then uh, push it up and then the whole thing turns down and uh, it's hollowed out and you shrink and you collapse, but by that time, the managers will have left the company. Right. They will have taken uh, their bonuses and uh, salaries and run. I want to read this quote from your book. Uh, written by David Harvey in A Brief History of Neoliberalism, and have you comment on it. The main substantive achievement of neoliberalism has been to redistribute rather than to generate wealth and income. Accumulation by dispossession. I mean the commodification and privatization of land and the forceful expulsion of peasant populations, conversion of various forms of property rights, common, collective, state, etc., into exclusive private property rights, Suppression of rights to the commons, colonial, neo-colonial, and the imperial processes of appropriation of assets, including natural resources, and usury, the national debt, and most devastating of all, the use of the credit system as a radical means of accumulation by dispossession. To this list of mechanisms, we may now add a raft of techniques, such as the extraction of rents from patents and intellectual property rights, 
and the diminution or erasure of various forms of common property rights, such as state pensions, paid vacations, and access to education and health care, won through a generation or more of class struggle. The proposal to privatize all state pension rights pioneered in Chile under the dictatorship is, for example, one of the cherished objectives of the Republicans in the U.S. This explains the kind of denouement or the final end result where, which you speak about in your book, is in essence allowing what you call the rentier or the speculative class to cannibalize the entire society until collapse. Well, a property right is not a, a factor of production. Uh, look at uh, what happened in Chicago, uh, the city where I grew up. Uh, Chicago uh, didn't want to have to raise the taxes on real estate, especially on all of the uh, expensive commercial real estate there. So uh, the budget uh, ran up a deficit. They uh, needed money to pay the bondholders, and so they sold off uh, the parking rights uh, to have meters uh, you know, along the curbs uh, for the Chicago streets. Well, uh, the result is that uh, they sold to Goldman Sachs a, a 75 years of the right to put up parking meters. So now the, the cost of living and doing business in Chicago was raised by having to pay off the parking meters. If Chicago is going to have a parade or something and block off the traffic, Chicago has to pay uh, Goldman Sachs uh, what it would have made if there wouldn't have been a close-off for, uh, par for parade. And uh, all of a sudden, uh, it's much more expensive to live in Chicago because of this. But this added expense of having to pay uh, parking rights uh, to Goldman Sachs to pay out interest to its bondholders uh, is counted as increase in GDP because you've now created more product by charging more. Uh, if you sell off a road, uh, a, a government or a local road, and you put up a toll booth and make it into a toll, toll road, all of a sudden GDP goes up. Uh, if you go to war abroad and you spend more money on the military, the military-industrial complex, is, all this is counted as increased production. None of this is really part of the production system of the uh, capital and labor building more and more factories and producing more things that people need to live and to do business. Uh, all of this is overhead, but there is no distinction between wealth and overhead, and failing to draw that distinction means that the host doesn't realize that there's a parasite there. The host economy, the industrial economy, doesn't realize what the industrialists realized in the 19th century, that if you want to be an efficient economy and be low-priced and sell, undersell competitors, you have to cut your price by having the uh, public sector provide roads uh, freely, medical care right. freely, education freely. If you charge for all of these, then you get to the point that the economy is in, U.S. economy is in today. When if American workers and in, who work for factories were to get all of their consumer goods for nothing, all of their food, transportation, clothing, furniture, everything for nothing, they still couldn't compete with uh, Asians or uh, other uh, producers because they have to pay uh, up to 40%, 43% of their income for rent or mortgage interest, 10% uh, or more of their income for student loans, uh, credit card debt, 15% uh, of their paycheck is automatic uh, withholding to pay uh, uh, Social Security to cut taxes on, on the rich or to pay for medical care. So Americans, uh, you've built into the economy all of this overhead, and there's no distinction between growth and overhead, and it's all made America so high-priced that we're priced out of the market, regardless of what trade policy we And have. we should add that, that under this uh, predatory form of economics, you game the system. So uh, you privatize pension funds, you force them into the stock market, an overinflated stock market. Uh, but uh, because of uh, the way uh, companies are go public, uh, it's the hedge fund managers who profit. And, and, and it's those citizens whose retirement savings are tied to the stock market who lose. And maybe we can just conclude by talking about how the system is fixed, not only in terms of burdening the citizen with debt peonage, but by then forcing them into uh, the market to fleece them again. Well, we talk about an innovation economy as if that makes money. Let's uh, suppose you have an innovation and a company goes public. Uh, they go to Goldman Sachs and other companies, uh, Wall Street investment banks, to underwrite the stock. What and uh, they uh, say uh, we're going to issue the stock, say at forty dollars a share. 
what's considered a successful float is immediately uh, the uh, Goldman and the others will go to their insiders and sa they'll say, you know, will you buy this stock? You'll guarantee it'll go up. A successful flotation doubles the price in one day. So that at the end of the day, the stock's selling they, for $80. But they have the option to buy it before everyone else. Yes. And, and knowing that by the end of the day, it'll be inflated and then they sell it off. That's exactly and right. And so the pension funds come in and buy it at it, an inflated price and right. then it goes back down. Uh, it may go, may go back down, or it may be that the company just was shortchanged from the very beginning. And uh, here, the, here uh, the important thing is that the Wall Street underwriting firm and the, uh, the uh, speculators that come in that it rounds up get more in a single day than all the years it took to put the company together. Right. The, 40, the company gets 40%. These people get also $40. Other people get $40. So uh, ba basically, uh, you, you have the financial sector ending up with a much more of the gains, and the name of the game, if you're on Wall Street, isn't profits, it's, uh, it's capital gains. And that's something that uh, wasn't even a part of uh, classical economics. They didn't anticipate that uh, the price of assets uh, would go up for any other reason than earning more money and capitalizing an income. And actually, what you have uh, uh, in the last uh, 50 years, really since World War II, has been asset price inflation, uh, that most families, have uh, middle-class families, uh, have gotten uh, the wealth that they've uh, got since maybe 1945, not really by saving what they've earned at the, by, while working, but by the price of their house going up. They've benefited by this price of the house, and they think that that's somehow made them rich. And uh, the reason the price of the house has gone up is that a house is worth whatever a bank is going to lend against it. And if banks have uh, made easier and uh, easier credit, lower uh, down payments, then you're going to have a financial bubble. And so now you have indeed real estate having gone up as high as it can. Uh, I don't think it can take more than 40% of somebody's income to buy it. But now if you imagine if you're joining the labor force, you're not going to be able to buy a house at today's prices, uh, putting down a little bit of your money, and then somehow end up getting rich just on the house investment. It, all of this money you pay the bank is now going to be subtracted right. from the amount of money that you have to spend on goods and services. So we've turned the post-war economy that made America uh, prosperous and rich, we've turned it inside out. And uh, uh, somehow the, uh, most people believe that you could get rich by going into debt to borrow something that's going to rise in price. And uh, you can't get rich ultimately in going into debt. Uh, in, in the end, the creditors always win, and that's why every society since Sumer and Babylonia have had to either cancel the debts or you come to a society like Rome that didn't cancel the debts, and then you have a dark age. Everything collapses. Uh, and that's the topic of our second discussion, uh, which is where we're headed. Thank you, Michael. And thank you for watching Days of Revolt. Hi, I'm Chris Edges. Welcome to Days of Revolt. Today we're going to carry out part two of my discussion on where we're headed economically with the economist Michael Hudson, who worked on Wall Street, has taught economics, and is the author of Killing the Host, How Financial Parasites and Debt Destroy the Global Economy. Welcome, Michael. It's good to be here again. So we spoke in the first segment about the parasitic quality of the banks, the hedge funds, the speculative class that has, in essence, cannibalized the country, including, I think, interestingly, industry itself, um, and forced down the throats of the American public uh, an unsustainable debt peonage, whether that's through student loans, uh, predatory credit card interest rates, uh, where the, it's that bait and switch where you get 0% interest and next thing you know you're paying, uh, I mean, it, what does it go as high as 26%, 23%? If you miss a payment. If you miss a payment. Um, mortgages uh, with many houses, of course, now underwater because of 2008. And I want to look first at the self-identified liberal class within the Democratic Party, including Barack Obama, uh, who often use the language of economic justice and will even chastise Wall Street rhetorically, um, but have been as committed to this neoliberal 
project, as, of course, the Republicans? Well, the key of demagogic pro uh, politics is uh, to realize that the people who are really backing you are the campaign funders. And your job as a politician is to, look, uh, to say, I can deliver this constituency to, uh, uh, to you backers. And uh, uh, Obama was uh, a genius at uh, doing what Donald Trump is trying to do today, at taking a constituency. Uh, in column A, he uh, had a focus group list everything the constituency wanted. They wanted debt relief. They wanted better jobs. They wanted higher minimum and they, wage. And not the trade agreements like right. NAFTA. And right. And then column A that he didn't tell them was what the, uh, the uh, campaign backers on Wall Street did. And uh, he was picked uh, uh, essentially by Robert Rubin, uh, who then became head of Citibank, uh, who came out of the Goldman Sachs. Uh, and he was picked by Rubin of Wall Street, to, uh, and his promise was he was going to uh, really uh, do what any president today is going to do. Your job is to deliver whoever voted for you to your backers who are on Wall Street. And whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, but especially if you're a Democrat, that's really the Wall Street uh, wing of uh, the American political system. And uh, the Republicans are the corporate monopoly, uh, oil and gas uh, uh, wing of it. And uh, that's really uh, the decision. Well, uh, Obama was, uh, as soon as he got in, uh, Paulson, uh, the Republican, uh, Treasury Secretary uh, said, uh, was talking to uh, Barney Frank uh, and said, you know, we, we were supposed to, under TARP, uh, have some of the money to go for debt write down. And Explain TARP. Well, TARP was the uh, troubled asset management. Uh, it was supposed to uh, treat uh, the banks as if they were troubled. Uh, if you're a criminal and you're stealing from people, that's called troubled. Uh, <laughs> there's a, a, a lawsuit recently. It's been in the news about the, uh, the rich boy who uh, hit somebody in a car and uh, he killed four people. Uh, and his defense was, uh, it's not my fault. I have affluenza. I'm so rich that uh, I don't have a sense of social, social sense. So of course I drove away, but uh, I'm innocent because I'm rich, what do you expect? Well, essentially, that's uh, the Goldman Sachs view of the economy. Uh, you cause collateral damage all over, but uh, that's what Wall Street does. You can't punish them for it. They're just doing you know, what a predatory uh, financial uh, institution does. So uh, uh, Obama said, no, uh, it's not, I'm not going to uh, uh, do that. Uh, he came in and he appointed uh, Wall Street's main lobbyist, uh, one of the most, uh, uh, Tim Geithner. You spend a Treasury lot of time Secretary. in the book on him. Yeah. Uh, that's right. Geithner is sort of uh, uh, appears in almost every uh, dirty dealing episode uh, of the book. He was the bagman. Uh, he was the person who uh, uh, the FDIC. Uh, accused of block, the FDIC wanted to take over Citibank, which not only was broke, but it was a, a criminalized organization. Explain it, it just broke. quickly why it was criminalized. Well, uh, Citibank, well, Citibank, by the way, was not alone. There were other. No, there, there were others, but uh, Citibank Citi was maybe the worst. Citibank, uh, along with Countrywide Financial, was uh, was uh, making junk mortgages. In other words, these were mortgages called Ninja. Uh, they were called uh, liars' loans. People to, with no income, no jobs, and no assets. Now, when Wall, uh, you had this movie, The Big Short, as if uh, somehow this genius on Wall Street discovered that uh, the mortgages were all going to go down. Well, if all, all of, uh, and you have the uh, stories of Queen Elizabeth going to the economist. Asking what happened, well, yeah. how come none of you knew? How come one of you knew? The fact is, if everybody on Wall Street calls these mortgages liar's loans, if they know that they're made for ninjas, uh, for people who can't pay, all of Wall Street knew that it was fraud. Right. The, the key is, if you're a criminal, uh, you have to plan to get caught. Uh, the plan is, what do you, how do you beat the rap? And in Wall Street, if you buy garbage assets, how do you make the government bail you out? That was what the President of the United States is for. Whether it was Obama, or whether it would have been John McCain, Bush. or whether it would be Hillary today, or Trump, their job is to bail out Wall Street and make the people pay, uh, not uh, Wall Street, because uh, uh, Wall Street is the people who select. Basically, uh, uh, the, the politicians know where their money is coming from. And if you have a campaign contributor, no matter uh, uh, whether it's uh, Wall Street or uh, on locally, if it's a real estate developer, you all know who your backers are. And uh, uh, the 
talent you have uh, as a politician is making the voters think that you're going to be supporting their interests. By what's that great Groucho Marx quote? Uh, the secret of success is sincerity. If you can fake that, you've got it made. Well, and that's kind of it, because he, you know, there's a Ron Suskind in his book, uh, what's it called, Confidence... Uh, Confidence Man. Confidence Man uh, interviews someone on Wall Street and asks why they're so hostile to Obama when he's so protective of Wall Street. And the answer is... Uh, because if we keep being publicly hostile, he always does what we want. This is uh, uh, like Uncle Remus uh, and uh, the, the briar patch, when Br'er Rabbit keeps saying, don't throw me into the briar patch, and finally uh, the, the fox throws him into the briar patch, and the rabbit runs away, says, born and bred in the bar briar patch, and runs away and is all happy. Uh, that there's the, a pretense that somehow if a politician talks against Wall Street and can vocalize people's resentment, that somehow he must understand Well, them. that's Hillary Clinton's doing that in space. That's exactly it. Uh, there's uh, a movie, uh, Seven uh, by Fellini, uh, the great movie with Anita Eckberg and everybody, and uh, 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 you have the uh, uh, Italian reporter go after Eckberg, and the boyfriend uh, comes up to him and says, I can understand you, and then whomps hits him right in the face. And, and that basically uh, is what we have here. Uh, uh, the politician says to the voters, I feel your pain. I can understand you. And they think, oh, he understands it. And then the politician hits him in the face and uh, essentially backs Wall Street and, uh, let, and uh, uh, tries to uh, uh, privatize the pension f funds, privatize Social Security, not send a single banker to jail by appointing, the, uh, uh, appointing Justice Department uh, people who are vetted by Wall Street. So essentially, Wall Street, your campaign contributors, have a veto over who you're going to appoint as Secretary of the Treasury. They want Attorney their Attorney General. Yeah, Attorney General, to make sure that nobody uh, has to pay the price, and the Council of Economic Advisors, who are going to assure the people that Wall Street really is adding to the economy. And if you can only do what the Federal Reserve is doing, Janet Yellen, let's give the banks more money and we can borrow our way out of debt. If right. only we can have quantitative easing. So the Federal Reserve has given Wall Street four and a half trillion dollars. Now that four and a half trillion could have been used to write down the debt. Right. And then we wouldn't have a problem. Then everybody right. would have a lower living account. The four and a half trillion could have been spent into the economy. Well, we could have saved people from being foreclosed yes. and driven from their homes. But that wasn't what uh, Obama did. I mean, so uh, in even essence, though he promised well, that he would, and then he turned around, he, he he earmarked some money to save people who were being pushed out of their homes, and then he never spent it. That's right. It wasn't spent. And that's what uh, a number of books uh, by the uh, uh, Sig Tarp, uh, the uh, uh, attorney uh, uh, general for Tarp, found out. He said, wait a minute, they're not spending any of it. It's all a fraud. And uh, he wrote uh, the whole book you know, about it, describing all of the lies that uh, Geithner uh, uh, said. And then when Geithner came out in his autobiography, he reviewed Geithner's autobiography and said, this man is a, a criminal and should, should go to jail. And Geithner was suitably rewarded by giving a job on Wall Street. Right. The Japanese call that descent from heaven. When you take your rewards, having sold out the economy to uh, uh, your backers, you uh, get a nice job and end up uh, rich for life. So let's talk a little bit about what this means for the future, because there's been no brakes put on uh, this kind of behavior, criminal and fraudulent behavior on, on the part of the speculative class. It, the bubbles have been reinflated with public funds, um, and I think you had written an article in Harper's Magazine before 2008 saying this is, we're all going to have a, uh, it's going to be a big car wreck. And, and um, since we're playing the game again, uh, what's going to happen and are they going to be able to go back and loot the U.S. Treasury the way they did before? Well, the, what's ahead, first of all, is that the economy hasn't recovered from 2008. People talk about uh, that there's been a recovery, but the recovery has only been for the 1%. Right, and right. the 99% know they haven't recovered. That's why they're voting for Trump, and that's right. why they're voting for Sanders. They, they know that it... Uh, but they're blaming themselves. There's a tendency of victims to blame themselves. Uh, and the other part well, of that... Well, but let's be clear. The media does, doesn't explain the, re, the economic reality yes. at all. They're always talking about the recovery and... 
that's the point. And so the result of the media telling people that is the Stockholm Syndrome, where the victim, the kidnapped victim, identifies with the victimizer, with right. the kidnapper, thinking if only we can give more money to Wall Street, Wall Street will save us. Uh, and uh, so if the Federal Reserve can only pump more money into the economy. Well, uh, they talk about the Federal Reserve creating money with a helicopter. But the Federal Reserve's helicopter only drops money over Wall Street. It doesn't drop money over the economy. People don't get the money. It doesn't say, we're going to add uh, $200 to everybody's uh, checking account so they can have more money and pay their debts. It's only lending money to Wall Street. And what does Wall Street do? Uh, Wall Street lends out money. So the solution to the debt problem that we're in, debt deflation, is to lend even more money. That's what makes it a Ponzi scheme. That you uh, mentioned at the beginning of the first half. In a Ponzi scheme, uh, people seem to make a lot of money, but that's because uh, you're really not making profits. You're really getting more and more people convinced that you're making money, and you're paying the early uh, entrance out of the new subscribers. That's what Bernie Madoff did. Uh, and the whole economy has become a Madoff scheme. Uh, and largely through real estate, right? Largely through real estate. So, you, they, that's so the your house, the, 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 the worth of your house ostensibly rises and rises and rises, and you believe that you have created, uh, it, that is a form of wealth creation. Well, here's really the problem that existed in 2008. Either Obama could have saved the economy or he could have saved Wall Street. He chose to save Wall Street. And the only way to save Wall Street, if a banks have made a lot of bad loans, you have to help them uh, not go bankrupt. And how do, what do you do? You give them more money. And the theory, uh, the pretense in the media uh, is that, well, banks will make money by lending to industry to build which, more factories they didn't and hire do. people. And also, and, they, and, and credit dried up for That's small right. businesses and consumers. That's right. The, the, the Wall Street knew that the real estate market was already loaned up. In other words, the game was over. Uh, nobody could pay any more of their income for rent or for mortgage money. Uh, they couldn't make much, uh, even more uh, credit card loans. So they began to cancel the credit card uh, right. exposure. Uh, what they did was they gambled on foreign currency. And student debt. And student, because student, it's guaranteed. That's right. They make, I mean, the government, the government guaranteed. Well, the, uh, since, since the uh, 2008 crash, the government has guaranteed almost all of the new mortgage loans, up to 43% of the income uh, that, that's guaranteed. Student loans, all guaranteed. But basically, the banks made money abroad. Uh, and you, you could, if you could borrow at one-tenth of a percent from the Federal Reserve, then you can buy Brazilian loans, uh, uh, bonds uh, paying 9% or more. You could gamble on writing uh, default swaps in Greece. And in fact, when Greece had uh, that real problem of uh, all the fact that the German and French banks had made uh, too many loans to it, uh, the IMF uh, was going to write down, uh, write off the Greek debt. But then uh, Geithner uh, was on the phone with Europe uh, all, uh, frequently. And then uh, Obama went to the G20 meetings and said, look, you you, have, you can't write off the Greek debt because the American banks uh, have essentially turned into to horse race uh, betters. Uh, we have casino capitalism. They have bet and promised to make uh, uh, to guarantee uh, the Greek bonds. And if the Greeks are written down, the American banks go under. And if we go under, we promise we're going to bring you down. Uh, we're going to bring down the European banks. Do you really want that to happen? And so the, uh, the gambles made by Wall Street ended up uh, as almost driving Greece out of the European Union, Wall Street was willing to tear Europe apart politically in order just for the Wall Street investment banks, for banks to make the gains that they made, ensuring uh, that uh, the Greek debt by treating the financial market like a horse race. That's what we are now. It's not really about uh, imperialism uh, draining foreign economies. It's by Wall Street uh, making bets. And uh, essentially, it's uh, Wall Street running uh, the the European Central Bank, and uh, just like uh, Europe has to uh, do burden sharing in NATO, uh, its financial ministries have to do burden sharing with uh, So let's talk a little bit treasury. about what this means, where we're headed. Well, it means that there is not uh, uh, that the markets are not growing because the American consumer has to spend so much money paying the banks and paying taxes that they don't have enough money to buy more goods and services. And one of the things you pointed out in the book, which I didn't know, is that when we measure the economy, we actually count the paying off of debt, credit card debt, whatever it is, as a form of savings. 
That's right. Uh, uh, writing uh, the savings rate jumped way yeah. up, but, but <laughs> the savings. But it's counted. But, right. but to an accountant, uh, if uh, you owe less money, uh, then actually you've uh, done the same as paid it out of saving. So uh, we're in a savings economy, and the, the savings rate in 2008 was zero. Uh, actually, it was negative 2% when you take into account uh, borrowing from foreigners. And so the, the whole economy was uh, essentially uh, the consumers were maintaining their living standards by running up their credit card debt and by running into debt and by taking out uh, what Alan Greenspan called cashing out uh, on uh, your house's rising value by taking out a mortgage. But that's not cash. That's taking on more debt. And right. so you had an inside-out vocabulary uh, that America was going into debt thinking it would get rich, and all of a sudden it finds it's in a, uh, a state of what you said, debt peonage, where uh, the wage workers and uh, others have to pay any increase in wages they get. Because you're spending all debt. of your income to service the interest. That's rather right. than paying off the principal. Uh, yeah. And that's why wages have been suppressed since the 70s. That's because the, 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 you know, the speculative class on Wall Street does not want people to be able to pay off their debt. This was the one thing that Alan Greenspan contributed to uh, economic theory, the traumatized worker syndrome. Yeah. And he said the reason that uh, you've had this huge productivity gain without any wages is workers are afraid to go on strike or even to complain about working conditions because they're one paycheck away from homelessness. Right, which is true. And if they miss a credit card payment, all of a sudden uh, their uh, credit card fee goes escalates to uh, 29%. Or even if they're late in a utility bill, right. the bank will raise uh, the fee. So what, what does this mean? I mean, what's going to happen? It means a slow crash. It means what was... We've, which we've already begun, haven't we? Yes, we're in a slow crash now. And all of this was analyzed already in the 1930s uh, when it was called debt deflation by Irving Fisher. Uh, uh, and the debt doesn't appear in the textbook. Somehow debt, uh, you, you talk about saving, but not debt. The fact is all money is debt of one form or another. The cash in your pocket is a government debt, technically. It's on the liability side of the balance sheet. Uh, and what people thought was an asset all turns out really to be floating, kept afloat by debt. And rather than the rising tide of debt raising all boats, it raises the yachts, but uh, the rest of the economy is underwater, to make a metaphor. And so spin it out for me. Well, what's going to I mean, we, we've, be... we've lost total control of this predatory or parasitic force. Well, you can look at the future as what's happening in Greece, what's happened uh, in, in Russia after their uh, uh, traumatic uh, shock therapy. America's in for shock therapy, no matter who wins the presidential. So, so play it out for me. What's it well, going to look that like? Me that means that more people uh, are going to have higher and higher uh, charges for uh, uh, what they uh, they spend for, for uh, medical care, uh, more uh, for schooling, uh, more uh, just just to break even, and they're going to have to either draw down their existing savings, or they're going to have to downsize, or they're going to have to default. Uh, the rate of default is still uh, it's rising very sharply on student loans, right. and uh, these are loans that you can't wipe out in bankruptcy. Uh, not, not unless you're dead. Then, then they'll go to your parents if they're that, still around. That's the point. The parents have countersigned, but meanwhile, the students who've taken out these student loans are having to live at home with the parents. Right. They can't afford to uh, buy a house, and if you can't afford to buy a house, it's really hard to get married. You, uh, I, I was in China recently, and uh, uh, my translator there uh, said that uh, the women in China, they're looking for a husband who can get his own house, because you need a house to you know, have children. All that stopped. Well, when you have this phenomenon in Greece or Russia or other places, you have uh, shrinking uh, uh, mortality rates, rising disease rates, shorter lifespans. Latvia followed this policy, and it's lost 20% of its population in the last, uh, uh, since about the late 1990s. Uh, you, you have uh, a huge emigration from Iceland, from uh, Greece. There's nowhere for Americans to emigrate right. to. Well, you say in the book that really the only option left is a form of debt slavery or revolt. That's exactly it. Uh, but uh, the enzymes that the parasite have sort of uh, inculcated via the control of the media uh, tell people it's not uh, Wall Street's fault, it's not the parasite's fault, it's your fault. You haven't been able to make as much but, money. But, Look at all these but is people. it working any? I don't think that the lie of neoliberal economics 
is being swallowed by larger and larger segments of the population, including the people who are gathered around Trump. That's right. They know that something's wrong, but they don't know what it is because nobody's spelling out how the economy actually works. And of course, that's why I wrote the book, right. to say, here's what's happening. The reason that I was able to warn about the crisis a year before it happened, I had the charts. Uh, that, uh, that were uh, published in Harper's, and uh, the charts recited uh, in the Financial Times as uh, those who, uh, mine were the only charts cited for those who did foresee the crisis, here's how it happened. Anyone who does Wall Street charts of the ability to pay, and this is what uh, happened in the 1920s, anybody who did charts like that can tell that there's a, an intersection, a breaking point, and there's a crisis, and so America now is having the same crisis that Argentina had, that Greece had, that Latvia had, that Russia had. These economies are our future, and it's going to go down and down in a slow crash. But could it go down and down, and what we end up with is, uh, you know, a form of neo-feudalism, a rapaciously wealthy oligarchic elite with a kind of horrifying police state to keep us all in order. This is exactly what happened in the Roman Empire. Yes, uh, it did. You had uh, the Roman uh, historians, Livy, Plutarch, uh, all uh, blamed the decline of the Roman Empire on uh, the, the creditor class being predatory, and the latifundia, the creditors took all their money and they would just buy more and more land, uh, displacing the other people. And uh, the result in Rome was a dark age, and that could last a, a very long time. And uh, the dark age really is what happens when the rentiers take over. And uh, if you look at uh, back in the 1930s, uh, what Leon Trotsky said fascism was, was the inability of the socialist parties to come forth with an alternative. Uh, and if the socialist parties and media don't come forth with an alternative to this uh, neo-feudalism, then you're going to have a rollback to feudalism. But instead of uh, military taking over the land, like uh, occurred with the Norman Conquest, you take over the land financially. So finance has become the new mode of warfare. Not military, except in Europe, of course, uh, but simply financial. You can achieve the takeover of land, the takeover of companies, the corporate raids. The Wall Street vocabulary is one of, con of yes, conquest and, and w wiping out. Uh, and uh, you're having a, a replay in the financial sense of what feudalism was in the military sense. And in essence, we become a kind of nation of sharecroppers. That's exactly right, having to shop, shop at the uh, company at store. At the company store. Yes. Well, I mean, that lays it out, and it, it I think, uh, illustrates the point that we need a vision uh, to counter the vision of predatory, parasitic capitalism. Um, and if we don't get a vision very soon, uh, we're in for a dark age. And the job of the politician is to promise a nice vision and then double-cross the uh, constituents. So, so far, unfortunately, they've done it very well. Yes. Thank you, Michael. It's good to be here. And thank you for watching Days of Revolt. <laughs>